Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Blog Talk Radio. I'll tell you, it's nights like this that I kind of wonder if Blog Talk Radio is the right to go anyway. Hi, Julie. Yes. Okay, sorry I'm calling in a little late, but we got you on now. So are you ready to go? I sure am. Okay. Well, I'm going to put you on hold just a minute here. Uh Uh-huh. So anyway, I had... uh, Skype crash on me right before I went into startup tonight, so that's why I'm a little late. But other than that, I think we're all ready to go for the Titanic things. First, though, I want to do just a little bit here of housekeeping. I want to let everybody know that we're going to be doing another program uh, on next Saturday that's going to be a 30-minute episode, and we're going to be talking about the Girl Scouts patch for Laura Ingalls Wilder. And then on May 6th, we're going to be talking to Trini Winninger, who wrote the book Rose Wilder Lane, San Francisco. And we're going to be talking about the things that you can do and see in San Francisco today that reflect the things that Laura and Rose experienced there. But... Uh, In the meantime, for tonight, if you want to call in, you can call us at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253 or 1-877-633-9389. That's 1-877-633-9389. Six three three nine three eight nine, and your calls and questions are always most welcome. Or you can just call that way to uh, listen in, especially if you're up and about. Now, uh, tonight's topic is going to be the Titanic, and it, uh, that's a really a strong area of interest for me. Now, we don't have a, a connection to the Titanic like uh, Julie's family does, but uh, it was something that was uh, a strong interest of one of my older cousins, and she kind of passed it along to me, and I kind of passed it along to a younger cousin, so we all like to talk Titanic stuff. In fact, the younger cousin actually made herself one of the rose dresses from the movie, and I have quite a few boxes of Titanic books, videos, reproduced artifacts, and so on and so forth that will hopefully find a home in my Laura Ingalls Wilder building if I ever get the thing done. In fact, I even actually got paid to talk about the Titanic once at an Iowa City Public Library fundraiser. We had a night on the Titanic meal. So um, I really loved talking about the Titanic, and I'm so glad that we could have Julie come in to talk about it tonight. So And now I'm going to go ahead and bring her back on. Welcome, Julie. Well, thank you so much. Well, we can only go uh, up from that introduction. So so, uh, do you want to just first off 
tell people a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, um, first of all, I would have liked to have earned that uh, Girl Scout badge for Lawrence Wilder, but that's not about the Titanic. <laughs> I'll get back over. They um, let you buy them, actually. If you really want one, they don't have any requirements whatsoever. Anyone can buy one. Well, about the Titanic, I guess. Uh, my great-uncle was a survivor of the Titanic. His name was Albert Caldwell, and he survived in second class along with his wife and his infant son, Alden, and um, his wife was named Sylvia, and I knew him well. He lived to be 91, and he died when I was a senior in high school, so I heard the story firsthand from him many times. He was 26 at the time of the Titanic, so this was a very strong story in our family, as you can imagine, as I grew up. Oh, I'm sure it would have been. Indeed. Uh, You want me to tell a little about it? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Uh, the Caldwells were missionaries in Siam. We would say Thailand today, and um, they had been there about two years. And Sylvia's health was suffering. She suffered as she was pregnant during that time. And of course, it was. It's, I looked at a website about the climate of Thailand. It says it has three seasons: the hot season, the hot and rainy season, and the hottest you've ever been in your life season. <laughs> and uh, and a, a friend of mine who works in Thailand gave it a like on Facebook. He said that was accurate. Yeah, okay. sure. Uh, suffered, so. Julie, uh, could uh, I just had somebody tell me that they're having a little trouble hearing you? Oh, okay. Uh, is that better? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I'll try that. Anyway, they they were in Siam and they had to leave because of Sylvia's health, and so they left in early 1912, making their way through the Indian Ocean, a grueling month on the ocean. And they wound up in Naples, Italy, where they had planned to let Sylvia take the rest cure for a disease she had called neurasthenia, which we don't recognize anymore. Might have been anything. It's such a catch-all name that it's, uh, the record is now confounded as to what the problem was. But as they entered Naples, they found out there was cholera in Naples, and they couldn't stay there. So they thought about taking the first ship out of Naples to go home, just skipping the rest cure for this disease and heading home. And the first ship out was one flying the American flag that day, which was March 14, 1912, and um, it was the, it was the Carpathia. Oh. Albert turned to a, yeah, a sailor on the ship he was on and said, what ship is that? And he said, the Carpathia. Now, according to my memory, he got on the Carpathia and, scoped it out. My sister recalls that he stood in line to buy tickets for it and changed his mind. And my mother said, oh, well, he definitely intended to take it home, but they changed their mind. Went into Naples for the night and saw a placard for the Titanic. And it was due to leave a month later, just when they had originally thought they would leave Europe. And Albert turned to Sylvie and said, there, that's the ship we're taking. So she was thrilled because it was the largest ship in the world, and she had been dreadfully seasick all the way through the Indian Ocean on a little bit smaller ship. And, in fact, that is probably why they turned down the Carpathia, because um, the Caldwell's grandsons remember that she wanted a large ship. She was concerned about a small ship. Well, the Carpathia was the same size as the ship they had taken through the Indian Ocean on which she had been seasick. So they opted for the largest ship in the world, the Titanic. It took a trip through Europe to get there, bought new clothes in Paris. They were going to go home in style, and um, in London, they went to buy tickets at the office of the White Star Line. Well, unfortunately, as they found out, the Titanic was sold out, at least in second class. Oh, and Albert was so crestfallen, and he always said, I must have looked like a very disappointed boy, because the 
clerk said, well, come in tomorrow and you can have the first cancellation that comes in. In fact, he said there was a cancellation every day. So Albert went back in the next day kind of with fear and trembling, uh, thinking he would, you know, might not get a ticket on the ship that he had, you know, they decided was just important for her seasickness. And he waited half the day nervously before a cancellation did come in, and indeed it was even in second class. It was just what they had wanted. So they thought they were the luckiest people in the world. So um, on on Alden's 10-month-old birthday, on April 10th, 100 years ago, they got on the boat train to go to Southampton, where the Titanic was moored, and the talk was, oh, oh, of how luxurious a ship everyone was going on and how beautiful and the largest in the world and unsinkable. And, of course, everybody had heard that. Well, one person that was skeptical of this was Sylvia because at Southampton, as the baggage handlers were loading trunks onto the boat, she asked the one helping them, is this ship really unsinkable? And he answered a very, very famous line that everybody knows about the Titanic. Can you guess what it is? God himself could not sink this ship. Yes, and I could tell your audience that I did not tell you what that was. <laughs> Everyone knows that line. That famous, famous line was actually said to Sylvia Caldwell, and it's been stolen in every movie ever since. <laughs> anyway, that was where that came from. And it was as beautiful a voyage as they had imagined it would be. Uh, and she was not seasick. You know, had it not been for the little problem of hitting the iceberg, they would have gotten exactly what they wanted, a, <laughs> a sickness-free voyage. But they, as Albert always said, the tables were piled high with all the delicacies one could ever want. Um, they, they were flying across the ocean and posting the travel uh, distance every day, and everybody was admiring that. It had taken a month to go through the Indian Ocean, and they were on track to cross the Atlantic in just a, really less than a week. And, um, oh, they could hear music anywhere. He was very impressed that the band seemed to play outside of the second class as much as the first class. Perhaps the band even divided in half. And, he, oh, that was just, he was very musical, as was Sylvia, so that was just a delight. And there was a second-class library. I know you'd like that. Uh, they were really impressed by that. One of his favorite things about the ship was that there were electric elevators between the decks. And this was such a novelty that, you know, you took the elevator between the decks whether you had to go to another deck or not. It was just so cool, you know. Well, and they really were experienced, those kind of uh, elevators with the pulling the, the black, you know, um, kind of fencing across and then closing yeah. the door and having, you know, an operator there making it go up and down instead of just the push buttons. It really was an experience to get in that cool kind of elevator. Yep, yeah, and he just loved that. They say, He said there were just, a, you know, people sort of line up to take this novel version of an elevator, which I thought was kind of neat. And that was one of his chief memories of the Titanic that he really liked about it. And um, one thing that he did do was to tour the ship and take photographs all over it and he was an amateur photographer kind of thing. And one day while Sylvia and the baby were having a nap, he went down to the engine room to take pictures. Well, he had to talk a crewman into letting him go down with him because passengers normally couldn't do that. But my Uncle Al was so garrulous and outgoing, it was probably easy for him to do that. So um, he went down to the engine room, took photographs, and in awe could describe this huge machinery for the rest of his life. But one thing he saw down there were the stokers shoveling coal into the boilers to, you know, to, uh, you know, we made the steam that made the ship go, and uh, he wanted to take their picture. And then he thought, well, maybe he wanted to shovel the coal into the fire, and they would take his picture. 
So he talked them into this and arranged it for, for it to happen, and they introduced each other all around, and one of the stokers took his picture while he shoveled the coal. And as I always say, he did not realize that shovel full of coal would save his life. Because on the night of the 14th, um, he got into his, uh, well, I should go back and say, they actually went to a church service that evening, and the theme was the old naval hymn, For Those in Peril on the Sea. And they knew that they were not in any peril, they were on the unsinkable ship. They understood it was a symbolic, you know, meaning the sermon was based on that old hymn as well. And Albert would always pause telling this and say, we were so happy to be worshiping God that night. Little did we know how many of us would meet him that very night. Mm. Anyway, it was very, yes, it was very chilling. It was very cold that night, and they normally took the baby out for a walk on the deck, but not that night. It was so cold, and they got into bed. And Anyway, Sylvie was only lightly dozing when the ship hit the iceberg because she was sharing the bed with the baby. I don't know how she got any sleep. But anyway, she tried to wake Albert up, but not very loudly because little Alden had been up screaming earlier in the day. And as new parents will do, they were, you know, shush, shush, don't wake everybody, don't don't disturb other people. And there was nothing they could do to calm them down. Finally, they thought of their keys, so they gave him the keys to the trunk, which he played with happily like a rattle, thank goodness. Well, they didn't want that to happen again, so she didn't holler too loudly to wake Albert up. But suddenly he woke up bolt upright in bed. He had no idea she had been calling, but he knew right away the ship was stopped because his upper bunk vibrated with the um, movement of the ship. Well... His bed was no longer vibrating. He knew the ship had stopped. So he leaped out of bed, threw on a raincoat, ran out on the deck and said to a sailor, why have we stopped? And the sailor said, oh, we just bumped into an iceberg. No harm done, I guess. Go back to bed. And Al did. Went back to bed. And he said it was really, really hard to get back to sleep without the vibrating bed. But just as he was drifting off, someone knocked on the door yelling, out on deck with your light bouts. Well, the Caldwells were just horrified because... They didn't want to wake the baby and cause more screaming. Oh, they reluctantly got up and dressed in their oldest clothes, left those new clothes they had bought in Paris in the trunk, left their $100 in gold pieces in the trunk uh, that they had saved for all their lives, and, um, and went out on deck. Oh, they had to wrap the baby in a blanket, though, because as they went in the trunk or tried to get in the trunk to get his little coat and hat out, they found out he had lost the keys to the trunk. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so when he was playing with them as a rattle, they looked and looked, never could find them. They're at the bottom today. Consequently, they couldn't get their money out. Not that they really thought they needed that those gold pieces out. They thought they'd be back in their cabin. So well, I suppose it would be. I suppose it was sort of like when the the towers went down and they were sending people back up. It, you got yeah. to a certain point and you thought it was okay, and that's sort of your default. It's kind of, except for the people who tend to panic easily. It's it's kind of hard to convince people that yes, this is important. Yes, you have to do something yeah, because it, that would. That would be a good analogy because there was absolutely no reason to get off the ship as far as they could tell. And most people agreed with them, you know. Um, As he said, he was never so shocked as when he had been milling around on the deck for a while. It was very cold and everybody was calm. There was no panic. And Sylvia sent him back to get another blanket for the baby and he stepped through a watertight door that was still open. And everybody knew that's why the Titanic would stay afloat. So surely... There was no danger. It hadn't been, even been closed yet. The watertight door had not closed. So they were just astounded when the crew started breaking out the lifeboats. They just could not imagine. And they said they called for women and children, but only women who were forced in went in there, not without protest. And they just thought, well, this is the rule of the sea. And the reason they thought it was so 
unlikely that this was really needed was Albert stepped all over the deck trying to see if it was slanting and it wasn't and they looked for uh, you know the sound tried to listen for the sound of an inrush of water and couldn't hear any there was no panic there was clearly no reason to get off and he said well this is just procedure you know kind of like you were just saying about the you would go back to oh I don't know what you were expected to do well they he felt like they were expected to break out the lifeboats in case of an accident and they had no intention of getting off the boat and were kind of waiting to go back to their cabin. And they did wander around for a while, but um, just at one moment, suddenly a group of stokers appeared where they were. You know, they were coming up from below. And one of them had been there when Albert took the picture and recognized him, called, recalled his name, and said, Mr. Caldwell, if you value your life, get off this ship. The hold below is filling up with water, and this ship will go down. Well, he could visualize the hold that he had seen the coal the coal hold he knew what that meant filling up with water and he was shocked and he kind of objected he said well everybody knows the titanic will float indefinitely and another stoker intervened and said well why don't you get off now and if the ship is still here in the morning you can get back on and that kind of made sense to him so suddenly uh he he took this man at his word and said okay and they they all hurried the stokers went over to lifeboat 13 which was just passing that deck and held the boat for them, and they got on. And so that was how they managed to get onto the boat, thanks to this, these stokers, really, that argued with them into getting them on the boat. So um, then they were on lifeboat 13, and it looked like for a while that would be the most scary part of the night because it didn't go down the side of the ship smoothly. It pitched forward, it pitched back. They were hanging over dear life. When they got to the water line, there was a pump pumping water out or a condenser pump throwing water out of the Titanic, and they got all drenched. And Sylvie said it was amazing they didn't even catch cold, but that pumped water pushed them behind lifeboat 15, and and they were right underneath 15 as it came down. Well, they went to release lifeboat 13 by pulling a lever, and it wouldn't release. And as my great-uncle always said, it was gummed up with shiny red paint. I always remembered it was a, as a child I was shocked that the Titanic was in color. Because <laughs> you always see it in black and white, you know. Yeah, and, <laughs> and of course, it was red. It had red trim. That was a big surprise. And um, anyway, they suddenly could not release from the side of the boat. And here came fifteen coming down on top of them, threatening to collide with them from above, which cannot do anybody any good. And they were screaming, "Stop! Stop! Stop!" And nobody on fifteen could hear because of the water being pumped out. And uh, finally, when fifteen was close enough for them to beat on the bottom, fifteen got the message and stop and was able to have the sailors stop lowering. And Sylvia recalled that someone from 15 handed down a knife onto 13, and Albert recalled the stokers taking knives out of their pockets, and they were sawed free. That was how they got loose. And they rode a half a mile away as directed, and it was only at that vantage point that Albert looked back and he realized the Titanic would go down. And he was just shocked. I mean, he really had not believed until that moment. So that was how unlikely it seemed to him, even though they were one of the last lifeboats away. And um, by the time he they got a half mile away, the Titanic probably had less than a half an hour. So they had the sad task of watching the ship go down. And um, he said the lights burned from under the water for some time. And finally they winked out, and there was a huge explosion, and the bow broke away and sank. And then there was just the stern outlined against a very cheerful, bright sky of stars. And it just lifted up slowly. And then, as he always said, with a gentle swish, she was gone. And he said there was a sort of a moment of stunned silence, and then people started screaming from the water because everybody had a life jacket on, and almost nobody actually drowned. They could they 
really mostly froze to death. And um, he said it was just a horrible thing. But he didn't tell me that until he um, until I asked him about it when he was 90. He normally didn't speak of it. He spoke publicly on the Titanic from 1912 to 1976, and he never mentioned that. But when I finally asked him at age 90, I said, "What you know? What was that like?" And he always had a cheerful smile on his face. He never quit smiling. He was a very positive person. But that smile went away, and his face turned dark and somber. And he said, "You just have to forget the screams, or you go crazy." And oh, that would much impress me as a as a youngster. And um, I realized he'd forgotten his screams for 65 years. Well, so then they were in the lifeboat, um, nervously wondering if they'd ever be saved. They knew the Titanic had a wireless apparatus to summon help, but it was such a new technology, no one knew if it worked. Um, they had seen another ship on the horizon that they knew the Titanic had been trying to call and had not come. And you know, for millennia, people had gone to the sea in ships and you know, if you got into a lifeboat in a shipwreck, you were just doomed to float around until you perished. You know, so it wasn't, it was just dumb luck you'd ever be found. And I think that's one reason the Titanic didn't have enough lifeboats is because technology had improved that possibility of being found on a lifeboat, but the regulations hadn't recognized that. So they didn't know if they would ever be found. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, but was really just a few hours, they could clearly see a rescue ship coming up. Then they were worried about being run down. They couldn't find a light on their boat, and so they were finally resorted to burning paper so that the rescue ship could see them. And when the dawn broke, the rescue ship was standing a safe way off, and they were shocked to see that it was the Carpathia, the ship they had turned down about a month earlier. Um, And now they're really thrilled to be on our passenger list. And uh, both Sylvia and Albert said that the very saddest thing was watching the women of the Titanic line the rails of the Carpathia as each lifeboat pulled up looking for a son, a brother, a husband, or a sweetheart who never came. And so that's that part of the story that he told me, and I could go on with others. If, like, I might stop and ask if you have any questions. Oh. Well, I've I've got questions, but uh, <laughs> was after they got on the boat, after that, was 13 their lucky number? Oh, you know, he always said 13 was never an unlucky number for us. <laughs> he always made that point. And, in fact, my book came out on January 13th, my book, A Rare Titanic Family, and I've spoken on every 13th since then. And people say, oh, do you mind? I'm like, oh, no, that 13 was never an unlucky number for them. <laughs> and, indeed, it was not. <laughs> well, it sounds like they uh, didn't mind talking about their experience. You know, sometimes when people go through a, a big horror like that, they they want to kind of just sort of avoid thinking about it, but it doesn't seem like that was true. Yeah, it, it's not. I, the, these two loved it. I didn't know Sylvia. I should say that Sylvia and Albert divorced in 1930, and in 1936 he married my great-aunt. So he's my great-uncle, but she's not my great-aunt. But I know from their son, Alden, and just from general um, interviews I've read that they spoke to the press all the time. Uh, Albert spoke to it all the time. He he started on the um, Chautauqua circuit in 1912 and continued speaking in public about the Titanic really until a year before his death. He died in 1977 and he just loved to talk about it. He kind of considered it a public service. You know, he just if anybody asked, he'd speak about it. And he was very proud to have been on the Titanic and thrilled to communicate to people about it. And he didn't charge for it. I think when he was new on the Chautauqua circuit, uh, obviously, he probably charged for it because I think they paid their speakers. But he didn't, uh, as a general rule, he was very proud of telling the story over and over again, always for free. So 
it was just a public service to him to talk about the Titanic. He was not shy about it and, and was real thrilled that I was interested in it. Had, did anybody ever record him or take movies of him talking about it if, since he and spoke so much? Indeed, he was recorded once by my cousin Bill Romeiser, um, and actually that clip is on Parade Magazine online. They just put it up uh, this past weekend, so um, it's a, a substantial clip of him talking about the Titanic. And so if you look up Parade Magazine or Parade.com and write Albert Francis Caldwell or Albert Caldwell, I guess it would be, um, you'll come up with it. Well, then... Well, that's a nice thing. I didn't know that was coming up, but I'll make sure I put some list on that. I thought you asked on purpose. <laughs> well, I, I um, guess I shouldn't have said anything. It sounded like I was prepared. <laughs> okay. uh, so, um, what brought them to be on the Titanic in the first place? Now, you'd said that they were, you know, in in Europe, but but you'd said that there was some issue with the the mission about why they were right now this was the part he never told me and so it was really exciting as i was researching for the book that i found out there was this great secret that had been kept about this all along now we knew that he and silvio were missionaries they had met at a presbyterian college called park college it's still there as park university uh, in Parkville, Missouri. It's no longer associated with the church, but it is very beautiful. If you're ever in Kansas City, it's worth going to see it. And they met there, and this um, school took in um, people with not a lot of money who were Presbyterian and offered them sort of a work-study program to get through school. And they had a lot of female graduates. And, you know, what does a woman do in that era with her degree at as we can all imagine, it was a little more limited. So one of the places that women were needed and could take leadership roles was in foreign mission work. And Sylvia already had um, a cousin, a female cousin and a sister in foreign missions, and she had decided that's what she wanted to do. So when Albert um, heard a speaker about a missionary job opening in Siam, well, first he didn't think anything of it until the college president told him he should apply, and he was kind of shocked when Sylvia informed him they were engaged, and she informed him that she wanted to go into the foreign mission field. So he thought about it. He communicated with this missionary, and he finally decided to go. So they got married on September 1st, 1909, and left that very day to go to Bangkok, which wasn't much of a honeymoon, I don't think. But anyway, uh, went uh, took a six-week voyage across the, the Pacific, in which they, she especially was seasick, and finally arrived in Bangkok, and for a while they both loved it. Albert really loved the climate. He did not mind it in the least. Sylvia, however, suffered with the heat, especially after she became pregnant with Alden and really had a hard time. Now, this is where I think they had problems with the mission. They became more and more alarmed at Sylvia's health, and even after the baby was born, she still had a fever a month later. And they were just sure there was something horribly wrong with her. Now, she had been pregnant in the hottest part of the year, and she couldn't seem to get past that. She couldn't get her strength back, and she just felt like something was wrong. So she went to her doctor, who was C.C. Walker, and Dr. Walker um, diagnosed her with having neurasthenia. Now, probably your listeners don't know what neurasthenia is, although your listeners are interested in history, so maybe they've heard of it. But it's a disease that went out of style in 1932. They declared it no longer a disease. However, huh. at the time, yeah, at the time, it, people did have physical symptoms. I've read case studies, 
And people might have symptoms such as an arm or a leg that didn't work or double vision or bent double or shortness of breath. They say today that the problem was that neurasthenia became what doctors said you had when they didn't know what you had. Therefore, it got to where it had no meaning and was often associated with hypochondria. For instance, if you went to the doctor with something that he thought was just, you know, silly and you couldn't be convinced that it was nothing, he would just say, well, you have neurasthenia. So by 1932, it had lost its meaning, so, and they declared it no longer a disease. Interestingly, it must have already had that reputation 20 years earlier in 1912 because Sylvia went to her doctor and was diagnosed with neurasthenia brought on by residents in the tropics. Well, to her, that was a dreaded diagnosis, and they were anxious to go home. He said, you need to go home, basically. You can't stick around in the tropics any longer. Well, she was voted down by five of the missionaries because they didn't believe she was really sick. Now, in my family, all my life growing up, we heard that Sylvia wasn't really sick. And, you know, of course, she was the one we didn't know. We knew our great uncle. We didn't know her. She had divorced him. I mean, what can you say? So I I began to realize when I heard that the disease went out of fashion in 1932 that, of course, that's why we thought that, you know, it became hypochondria at that point. But she generally was ill. We found a diary. Um, some wonderful person whose grandparents were missionaries with them had a diary of her grandmother and talked frequently about how ill Sylvia was. Now, she was pregnant. My thought is that the missionaries thought, okay, she's pregnant. She's going to get over this. You know, she's 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 not really that sick. She's just pregnant. What else is new, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was convinced, especially because the doctor's diagnosis said, if she stays in Siam, she will become insane, the same as Mrs. Barrett. Well, who is Mrs. Barrett? Well, that took a lot of research, but I found out she was a missionary who had gone stark raving mad in the tropical heat. And according to the official document that everybody could read, she had to be carried away by native boats. And, of course, that was kind of scary, you know? Yeah. So the Caldwells were begging to go home. Now, why didn't they just hop on a ship and go? Well... That's what we could do today. We could get a charge card out and get on an airplane and fly home to say we're leaving. But for them, it was going to be a two-month trip. Ultimately, they took four ships, multiple trains, hotels, and so on. And it was a very expensive, long journey. And the trick is it was part of their pay to go home. That was part of their pay. So if they didn't get approved, the church would not pay for their trip home, which you can imagine was forbiddingly expensive. So they were begging to go home at the church's expense. Well, they thought they got the church's permission, and and they seemed to have it. But they stayed on a few more months so Albert could finish the school year. But in that time, the head of the mission wrote to headquarters in New York, to the Foreign Missions Board, and he said, when the Caldwells arrive home, have Mrs. Caldwell examined by some of our doctors before you settle their account. And that meant translation, if she's found healthy, they'll owe the money for the trip around the world. Well, that was just incredibly a big amount of money, you know, beyond their means. And they they had indeed saved their money to go home should they not be released. That was the one hundred dollars in gold they had left on the Titanic. That would not have bought their trip around the world. It would have only brought the trip across the Atlantic. So um they indeed had been saving their money on the thought that they might have to skip out, uh, because they had been turned down, you know, they were anxiously trying to find a way to go home. Well, what was so shocking to me is that I've known for years that there was an ambulance waiting to take Sylvia directly to Presbyterian Hospital when she arrived on the Carpathia and a preacher was manning it and so on. I just assumed it was a mission of mercy, but when I read that letter that requested them to have Sylvia examined at Presbyterian Hospital, I realized <laughs> it was not a mission of mercy. It was an attempt to 
prove that she was not ill. And so that was a big shock to me. The church was waiting for them when they got off the Carpathia. Huh. Then you would think, I mean, if, if it would be part of their pay to get home, you'd think it would. they couldn't just leave them there regardless. They'd... Yeah, well, they were doomed. They were doomed. So they were supposed to stay there for life. They were actually signed on for life, which was a surprise to me. But the way it wow. was... Yeah, you had a, a seven-year hitch. Then you had to go home. Oh, you didn't have to go. You, you had a year's furlough where you could go home, have a year's vacation, and then you were supposed to come back. Now, my guess is that if you washed out during that year off and didn't come back, the church reckoned they had gotten their money out of you because it taught, cost a whole lot of money to train them, to send them around the world, and then to furnish their home for them, which was very expensive, and they were going home with all their household goods. So... As the church saw it, they were losing a bunch of money on a couple that left early. And in the perception of the missionaries, they were reneging on their contract, that they had just caved into this diagnosis that really all it was was that Sylvia was pregnant and had had a hard pregnancy. And so the, the mission was pouting. They were not happy um, that they had left early. And that's why they had all this sort of secretive attempts to make sure that she really was sick. Um, and it had this ambulance waiting. And you know she gave the ambulance a slip. I am convinced that the foreign mission board, uh, somebody on it was sympathetic and and pulled a bunch of strings to make sure that she was not examined. Huh. I'm not sure. I'm just thinking that. <laughs> so so how many years into the seven were they when they, they were, headed home? They were two years into the seven. So they oh, had five so. more years to go. Yeah, so it was quite a substantial yeah. loss for the church. They had spent a good deal of money training them and expected them to be there for life. Albert was supposed to take over as principal of Bangkok Christian College, which had 180 students at the time. It's still there. It now has 5,000 students, and it is the oldest school in Thailand. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think he'd be really pleased it's still there. (laughs) Yeah. Have you been in contact with them? Do they have, you know, like school history and that kind of thing about people having taught there? They don't know him. They do now. I, They have a lot of um, English-speaking American teachers there, as well as a lot of Thai teachers. And um, I found one at random on Facebook, and he's been very helpful talking about it and, and putting it up on his, um, you know, college page. And so they're, you know, he says, hey, if I can get over to Bangkok, <laughs> I'll make sure I speak here. Well, that'll be the day. But, I mean, I would love to. But, yeah, he's really interested in it and has spread the word, and um, I think that's really nice. They teach a lot of um, young boys still English there, and they have a real charming web page with these Thai boys of different ages showing off their skills as English speakers. Okay, to kind of turn the subject a little bit, uh, the Caldwells not only managed to get off, but they managed to get off with a photo of them on the Titanic. How did that happen? That's right. That's the cover of my book. And the book is A Rare Titanic Family. I'll throw on that little advertisement. And actually, they didn't have the photo when they got off. That was one of the biggest mysteries. Because when Uncle Al died in 1977, my mother um, helped break up his apartment, and she got his effects, uh, his paper goods. And one of them was this photo of a young couple and a baby on the deck of a very large ship. And we just thought, oh, my gosh, can this be the Titanic? Well, we couldn't recognize them because their face was in the shadow. The baby's the only one who's actually very clear. And it was not labeled in any way. So we spent weeks in detective work before we as a family were convinced it was definitely the Titanic and definitely the Caldwells. We even found exactly where they were standing on the ship. And it has been authenticated by a Titanic expert since then. So it was considered, you know, really unusual. It was quite a find. 
Um, and we did confirm it also with my uh, great aunt Jenny, his second wife, who said, "Oh, there's Albert on the Titanic. I forgot we had that old thing." You know, she was tired of hearing about it <laughs> and tired of being confused for the first wife who was on the Titanic. Uh, but um, she said the only I said, "How did they get the photo?" Their camera went down with the ship, and she said, "Oh, a friend in London took it and sent it later." Well, that was entirely what we knew. You know, that was it. And I thought thought we'd never know, you know, who took it. But as I was researching it, I was researching this interesting story that came up after all three of the Caldwells had lived to old age and died. Suddenly somebody was auctioning a watch at Christie's Auction House that was supposedly the watch the Caldwells used to bribe their way off the Titanic. Well, we didn't believe it. We were shocked because he, Albert had never mentioned a bribe. He had never had any guilt, you know. Mm-hmm. But I thought, well, we'd find out about that. And honestly, I think that was uh, a story that somebody sold to Christie's. I, as we went through it, there seemed to be no reason for him to bribe his way off because he was repeatedly invited, in everybody's account, invited on to the boat by officers because apparently Sylvia couldn't hold the baby. Whatever her problem was that was called neurasthenia, it was obvious to the eye that she was not well. So uh, in every account he was invited on, there was no need for a bribe. So that was probably contrived. But um, the in suggesting that this was um, a watch that was used as a bribe, Christie's commented that the watch was owned by James Caldwell of Scotland, and they had an address for him, and indeed the watch was engraved to him. And they said clearly he would have visited the Caldwells, the Albert Caldwells, at their home at to Upper Montague Street, London. Well, we knew they never had a home there. They were tourists in London, but they certainly lived in Siam. So I went on a rampage to find out what to Upper Montague Street was. Was it a, a hotel or whatever? Finally, I did find out it was a rooming house, so they rented out um, rooms by the week or the day. And actually, I found out its owner was Jeremiah McVeigh. He was a member of Parliament from Belfast, Ireland, where the Titanic was built. But when he wasn't in Parliament, was he, when he wasn't doing parliamentary work, he was a journalist and he covered anything that happened in London for the Irish newspapers. And it just struck me that he was the one that took the photograph. He probably found out that his two tenants were going to the Titanic and here was his chance to get on the ship to, as it were, see them off, but also to cover this ship for the Belfast News because the Titanic was built there. And his sister, who actually ran the hotel that he owned, would have had their forwarding address to send to them later. And this must be the friend in London who sent them the picture later. As far as I can tell, that's probably who it was. Wow, that was pretty exciting. It's it too was. Bad it was a great it, find. <laughs> it's too bad that they didn't weren't able to save the camera because, I mean, wow, that would just be amazing to have those pictures today I that he know. took. He, he always said, if only they found my camera at the bottom, what a story it would tell. Huh. And I don't know if they, you know, if they found any cameras, if they could even develop the film. But you know, hey, you never know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, the next day after the, they were on the wreck and they were picked up by the uh, Carpathia. Did he talk about seeing the bodies? Because a lot of the they talk about the ships coming over, especially like even the next week, would see the the bodies and the wreckage from the Titanic. Did or did they move out of that soon enough? They really didn't have to yeah, deal with the aftermath. Yeah, he didn't, and Sylvia didn't either see any bodies. Sylvia wrote uh, a little booklet about the women of the Titanic disaster, which really was um, where she over, overheard what they said on the Carpathia. 
and neither of them mentioned any bodies. I know that the captain of the Carpathia only saw one body. I know there were some um, people who froze to death on the lifeboats and were buried at sea, and Albert did watch them bury one man at sea, um, and that was kind of a grim thing. He did see that from the deck of the Carpathia, but that was all he saw. And um, But he did um, see, they did, you know, observe the Titanic's, um, you know, sad survivors and realized they were one of the few families that had survived intact. And he got out a piece of paper on Carpathia stationery and wrote a letter to the doctor who had diagnosed Sylvia and told him the whole story, which his grandson still has, and that was nice of him. To wow. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So uh, did the Caldwells get to meet any of the notables from the story, like uh, the ones that you hear to people talk about, Captain Smith, Molly Brown, um, President Taft's military aide, Archie Butt, anybody like that? The only one they met was Molly Brown, and she was very smart. You know, here were the Titanic's women at loose ends with nothing to do but brood about their sad situation, and... Um, and the horror they just seen, naturally that would be the first reaction. But she realized there was a greater need as, as not only to keep them busy, but she looked at the children who were come off the Titanic lifeboats. And you imagine little Alden in his one and only diaper all night long. It was probably a mess by then, and the children have been crying, and their snotty noses and erping up on their clothes. And their clothes are a mess, I'm absolutely positive, because everybody only had the clothes on their back. Mm-hmm. So she organized the Carpathia and Titanic's women to make clothing for children out of steamer rugs, which are more, not a rug like we would think would be really heavy and stiff, but kind of a cross between like a blanket and a towel. Mm-hmm. And um, she made these sort of poncho-like coats for them. At least I've seen a photograph of one that looked like a poncho. And the other ladies did too, and just made clothing for the children so they'd have something at least clean to wear and perhaps a little warmer that way. And she gave one to Alden personally, and so they did meet Molly Brown personally to get this um, little strange-looking garment that he did put on, and Sylvia was glad for him to have, although it was very strange-looking, according to her description. And unfortunately, we don't know what happened to that garment. Um, you know, We found among Albert's effects a little squashed pair of baby booties with his Titanic things that I'm convinced Alden was wearing off the Titanic. We don't know that he had baby booties on, but I always hoped that they were his and have not been able to tell one way or the other. But my thought was that when they divorced, Sylvia got the little coat and (laughs) and Albert got the little baby booties. I don't know. But we don't know what became of that coat, unfortunately. But they did meet Molly Brown. She did hand it to them personally. Sylvia was from Colorado, or her parents were, so I wonder if she was brave enough to speak of home with Molly Brown, who was also from Colorado. Well, I think that from what I've heard, Molly Brown was pretty personable, so she might have felt comfortable enough to... To say something. Oh, that would have that would have been great. I think that would have been a, a thing to have them talking. Sylvia was called one of the bells of Colorado because she was very beautiful, even though she had actually never lived there herself. Just her parents had, but they they claimed her. And uh, you know, I, I would have I would have kind of hoped that she and Molly Brown got to speak. That would have been a nifty thing. Uh, did they keep in touch with anybody that they'd met on the Titanic or the Carpathia? No, they never did. Um, they Sylvia followed the story of the Colliers in the newspapers. They had met um, Harvey and Lottie and um, little Madge Collier, uh, Marjorie was her real name, on the Titanic where they had dinner with them, and they were in second class. And I'm sure Madge, who was about eight, seven or eight, 
thought Alden was cute. You know, I, I could tell from the commentary that they met over their children. And unfortunately, Harvey didn't make it. And he was one of the, um, he was he had been going, had sold everything like many men had. He was going to England to start a fruit farm. And now they, his wife and child were left to do this on their own. And so Sylvia was real concerned about them. She followed their story in the newspapers and reported on that in Women of the Titanic Disaster, but never really met them again. Um, at one point when she was an old lady, Sylvia had one lady contact her who had been on the Titanic just by letter. And Albert, when he was an old man, met two other people who had been on the Titanic. One was traveling through Virginia, and they wrote him up. So Albert contacted him. He lived in Richmond, Virginia by then. He contacted him. The man came to see him. And then... As a result of that, um, a man who had been on the Titanic but was one day older than Alden, his son, who happened to live nearby, got in touch with him and came and visited as well. So those were the only people he ever actually met, and they were all, you know, when he was elderly. So really the only people he kept up with were his ex-wife and his son. Uh, Did your uncle suffer any taunting or anything from making it off the ship? I mean, they always talk about how, especially like Bruce, uh, Bruce Ismay got really... Um, criticized very vocally and kind of hounded about getting off the ship. Had there been any of that? He was Bruce Ismay was criticized roundly in the press and by the U.S. Senate, um, and so he was the lightning rod for everybody's you know uh, hatred. He had caused the ship to speed, and that's what my uncle thought that the ship was speeding, and that was his problem. Um, he never mentioned being taunted, but I'm quite sure he must have been because all my life I had to defend him. And that was no big deal to me. I'd say, oh, whatever, he got off the ship, yay, you know. And men were allowed off the Titanic. It's one of the great myths that none were. What happened was that on the one side of the ship, uh, the officer took seriously the um, direction of women and children at first and only let women and children on the boats, even though they were half full. Uh, on the other side, the officer heard women and children first, and he said, well, women and children first, and women would say, not without my husband, he'd say, all right, women with husbands, and then he even would go to single men. So he let men off all night long, and his boats were more full. And just by dumb luck, Al was on that side of the ship. Um, you know, he didn't know any different. Now, um, it was a, there was a sense of women and children first, and he was actually stopped on the way of the lifeboats at one point by a steward who tried to even take Alden out of his hands and say, you know, only only women at this point. But Someone said, well, can't the daddy go to carry the baby? It was another woman. And he had, apparently the steward had thought that was the mother of the baby. That's when he realized that the mother was the sickly-looking woman. <laughs> he said, oh, okay, sure, and he put the baby back in his arms, you know, because he, he knew he, the daddy had to carry the baby. He, you know, So interestingly, he did fight the fight even on the ship, although quite passively someone fought it for him. But uh, I know his, his grandson was taunted when they, his schoolmates found out he had a male relative survive. But I don't, you know, I don't recall him ever being ashamed of it or embarrassed by it. He was happy to be a Titanic survivor and proud to be known that way. So I'm sure he he had to address it, but it was just he he got off the ship. I mean, it was no uh, there was no difficulty at the time of entering the lifeboat. Only that one steward tried to stop him. Uh, have you taken any trips to see a Titanic museum or the White Swan Hotel or other places that had some of the Olympic paneling or gone yeah. to any of the Titanic events? When I love to go to the, the the hotel you mentioned, I've been to um, I've well the Titanic the traveling Titanic exhibit came through Birmingham and I saw it there where I live I live in Birmingham Alabama it also came through Memphis and our whole family went up to see it there and that was humorous because 
I made a big invitation and called myself the unsinkable Julie. And by the time we got there, there was this huge power outage in Memphis, and we got stuck on the elevator, and everybody said, oh, it was just bad karma. I should not have said unsinkable. <laughs> anyway, but we did see it. Um, and just this past weekend, I was in Kansas City where Albert and Sylvia met, and I went to the Kansas um, City traveling exhibit of the Titanic um, artifacts. Next weekend, I'm going up to the Titanic Historical Society to speak there. That's in Massachusetts. But I've not been to that lovely hotel uh, that you mentioned and um, haven't taken the cruise across that people sometimes take that goes over the Titanic's grave. That would be another goal someday. Now, uh, your books come out on the 100th anniversary of the story. Uh, Yours isn't uh, the first book that referenced your relative story. Do you get contacted a lot by people wanting to know more? Um, I've I've had to give a lot of talks, which I love giving, all over Alabama. I'm arranging some in Georgia. I will be giving some in the Midwest and uh, the one up in Massachusetts. But um, I haven't been contacted by that many people doing further research uh, for other purposes, although I have um, come across several people named Caldwell and Harbaugh, Harbaugh was Sylvia's maiden name, who are interested in finding out if they're related and finding out more about them. And so that's been really fun. Um, and I have been talking with them uh, and uh, trying probably fairly fruitlessly to guide them through their genealogy to see if they're related to the Caldwells. Uh, so as a relative of a survivor, how do you feel about the museums of things that were salvaged off the Titanic? This seems to be kind of a divisive issue. There are some people who think it should be left alone as sort of a, a, a that it's sort of con- uh, desecrating a grave to take this stuff and put it on display. And there's some people who think it, it's a great idea. What's, where do you come down on that? Yes, and just today I saw a very poignant picture that they released that was taken several years ago of what appears to be a body at the bottom of the wreckage, something uh, it looks like a pant leg and a boot half buried under something. And, uh, you know, so that was very, very sad. Um, I knew that, however, that great-uncle Al really expected that they would find the Titanic. He knew they would. He said they will find that thing again. And he kind of thought, in 1912 he said it broke in two and sank, but by the time I knew him he thought it had sunk as one piece. And I know about that time that was the vogue to think it had gone down in one piece. So I don't know if he changed his mind or just forgot when he was an elderly man, but he always pictured that they could pump it full with styrofoam when they found it and it would float. And he used to discuss that with my dad over and over again to try to see if that would work. Like my, you know, my dad was a, an engineer, but I don't think he knew about undersea matters. And he told Al he didn't think it would work, but that was his scheme. And he always thought they'd float it and take it on into New York, and then he would get his gold pieces back that he had left in his trunk, and he used to talk about that a lot. And, you know, he used to always tell me when I was a kid, you know, honey, when they raise that thing, you could have my gold pieces. And so he always wanted his gold pieces back, and he always thought he'd see the ship again. And, you know, only missed by nine years. They found the Titanic nine years after he died, so I was kind of bummed for him that that he missed it. But um, maybe it's even less than nine years. It was very close. Anyway, uh, he always wanted to see it again. He always anticipated getting his money back that he had left in his cabin. <laughs> so um, I think he would be in favor of them bringing up artifacts. It was just something that he really uh, it marked his life in such a way that it was important to him. And I respect uh, people who worry about it being gravesite, and he would too, I'm sure. But since he was anxious to, you know, see the ship again and get his gold back, I, I think it's a great idea that they do bring things up and. 
as long as they show them tastefully, which the one in Kansas City this weekend was very tasteful. I thought it was very nicely done. The one that uh, really, uh, the, the thing that has I've seen that kind of bothered me was at the state fair for at least a while. I don't know if they had it this last year or not. They had a giant inflatable slide that was made up to be the <laughs> Titanic, like you were sliding down the deck. And I don't know. I think that was maybe on the other side of good taste. I, I've but. seen that too. I, I pulled over once at a car dealership that had one. I said, oh my gosh, is that the Titanic? And tried to take its picture. Anyway, they finally got it at one of my son's schools and they got it. They just put in a bid for a bouncy thing and they got that. So, of course, I had to my son is named Alden, too. I had to pose Alden on his picture. It was kind of tacky, but I thought, oh my gosh, look at that. I've got to get a picture of my Alden on that. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty tacky, but Oh, the kids have fun playing on it. They were, you know, I guess this is a kid toy, and the kids are, kids like the Titanic. They're interested, but it's not as, um, you know, I could see that as a childhood device for bouncing around and playing, I guess it would be just another kind of weird play toy. (laughs) So what do you think, 100 years out, why do you think people are still so captivated by the Titanic? That is a good question, and one that many people have asked. I... For one thing, I know that it, it, you know, had a lot of millionaires that went down on it, the very famous names of their era, John Jacob Astor, Benjamin Guggenheim, you know, and that was pretty dramatic and exciting and horrifying. And uh, also the idea that it was unsinkable and went down on its first voyage, and that was dramatic again. Well, one thing that I think that we don't connect with it but that was so is that it was an early example of instant news, um, not as instant as watching the tragedy of, of 9-11 unfold, but as we saw it. But I know it was instant in that uh, the Titanic was sending out the distress call on the wireless, one of the first major shipwrecks to do so. And, you know, in, in past eras, a shipwreck would mean that, you know, the ship didn't arrive at port. And over time, you'd realize that it must have wrecked, and that's how you know. Well, here we go. The Titanic is sending out its distress call, and it's picked up at Cape Race, um, Newfoundland. It's sent inland. It's picked up on the roof of Wanamaker's department store, and by contract, that Marconi station passed it along to the Hearst newspapers so that everybody got word almost right away that the Titanic had hit an iceberg and said it was sinking. And my great-uncle always said his parents, one time he said his parents actually heard it was sinking before it even went down, and that may not be so. That would have to be very, they would have had to have been right at the right place at the right time. It was possible, but not likely. But the next day, or actually that Sunday morning, that you know, because it actually sunk um, in Illinois time late on Saturday night, uh, late on Sunday night, so it was that Monday morning. Anyway, that very morning, they got the um, list of partial survivors, and of course their son wasn't on it and because they focused on the first-class passengers, and they were you know, numbed with horror, and they got down on their knees and prayed, and they had to wait the next day for the newspaper to come out again with a full list, in which case they found Albert and Sylvia and Alden on it. Of course, unlike for many people, it was a happy ending for them, but they spent a very anxious day watching this news happen, you know, even though not in the way we do. But I think there's something to that quality of watching the story unfold as a tragedy that sears it in our mind, you know, especially this kind of a non-war event. It was not like a you know, political crisis like you know, like a war might be, but it was just this something that people watched. And I have a, maybe this is because I'm a media historian, but I have a feeling that that has something to do with imprinting on, on people's minds in a way that made it 
even more exciting and a lot of false news got told and had to be straightened out. Just like just like with any great tragic event like nine eleven for us and, and you know, again making us follow it even more closely, making it magnifying its interest, I guess. And I think that's one of the theories I have. I'm not so sure. But one reason why it's so popular is that it's one of the first shipwrecks where we had a lot of people live to tell the tale. I mean I guess that's not true. A lot of times we had a shipwreck where people did tell the tale, but in previous generations, if a ship went down with so many people lost, you probably never heard of it again because everybody would be lost. But because of the Marconi, we had a lot of people lost, but a lot saved too, so that the story got told and retold and retold. And that also has something to do with it. Well, I think too that the, the fact it went down on its maiden voyage and it, it was just so glamorous. I think that if yeah. it had been later, um, like, um, well, the Britannic is a good story too. But it's um you know it's not really that kind of moment of glamour and it's like it's it's yeah. frozen there forever but it was long enough to sink at the same time that you can also put yourself in the horror of it and say you know what would i have done and people always like to think that they would have done the brave and heroic thing but yeah what exactly. the <laughs> and that's true i think you you've hit a nail on the head there that that's true too and the glamour of it was high i mean these were celebrities of their day and they all went down this the men did and that well, you're right about that and people do think they would have done the heroic thing but then um you know when the italian cruise ship turned over this january you know they they lost half their lifeboats that way, so they asked for women and children first, and the first thing that came out of people's mouths was not without my husband. Same exact thing. You know, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. That was very revelatory to me that that was the first thought. Well, we are almost out of time, so why don't we go ahead and have you give uh, another plug for your book, That's which I can't called... wait to read. <laughs> oh, you'll enjoy it. It's called A Rare Titanic Family, The Caldwell's Story of Survival. It's published by New South Books and came out in 2012. And uh, you can get it, order it through any bookstore or online. And um, anyway, a rare Titanic family. And the author is Julie Hedgepeth Williams. Well, thank you again for coming on, Julie. I'm so glad. If people enjoyed tonight's talk, be sure to go back and listen to Julie coming on talking about Carrie Ingalls' Press Woman, if you haven't done that yet, because I think that was an, another good episode. So thank you very much, Julie. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. And, uh, and I'll see you around. I'm on Facebook as well. People <laughs> should look me up. <laughs> okay. And with that, we're going to play out on the theme music. And I'll see everybody else next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.